Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Hi listeners, Michael here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of What Didn't Kill You. Today, I'm discussing personal 360s with Lauren Iveson of Totem Leadership as I'm exploring doing one for myself. For those of you unfamiliar, a 360 is a management tool similar to a performance review, but with feedback from multiple parties, including peers, managers, and direct reports. So a personal 360 would be an exercise in doing much the same thing, but with feedback from people in your life, regardless of whether or not you work with them. It's a much more personal version focused on finding blind spots and getting better in your everyday life. I'm both excited and nervous to travel down this path. And if you've experimented with one of these in the past, I'd love to hear how it went. All right, Lauren Iveson, thank you for joining me on my little podcast here. Excited to have you on today. We're going to do something a little bit, I think, different from the previous episodes I've done and have kind of a bit more of a collaborative conversation, I guess, on a specific topic. But that topic today is, is personal 360s. And it's something that I've discussed before with some previous guests in the show, Carrie Sulenis, and in particular of Atlas. But you and I have been talking about this subject, so I wanted to create a show out of it. And to get started, maybe you could just share a little bit about your background today. You're a coach, a business coach with your firm's Totem Leadership. Would love to hear about how you got to that today and what your path has been. Thanks, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. So I had a long and winding path to totem leadership, and I won't go too far into the details, but at a super high level, you know, I just have a broad background in business. I started my career in management consulting, uh, went to law school, practiced law for only a couple of years and did a variety of different things when I practiced law. And then I spent about five years with a boutique financial advisory firm helping I would call them early growth stage companies, either raise their first round of capital or second round of capital and or sell. And that was a deep dive into companies. We were talking a lot about how they were organized, how the people were working together, what they needed to do to position themselves well in the market. And I, I think as I look back, that's one of the places where I started getting much more interested in kind of what were the dynamics internally from companies, not just how did they look from the outside. From there, I had a brief stint at J.P. Morgan at the private bank. I had a really cool role where I was helping entrepreneurs in Boulder think about how they wanted to position for exit. And what I thought was really cool about that is we were actually talking as much about what they personally wanted out of a transaction as we were talking about kind of how the transaction should happen for the best financial outcome. So again, that kind of interplay goals was what was piquing my interest. And then I got a really wonderful opportunity. I was approached by a guy named Eric Tangleson out of Chicago to help open up what is now Ridgeline Ventures, originally Rangelight. And Luke Vernon and I were both hired to help open up Rangelight. And, or I guess I should call it Ridgeline now. 
to open up Ridgeline. And Ridgeline is a small private investment firm investing in companies that support a healthy lifestyle. So mostly natural foods and outdoor companies. And we were looking to make investments of, gosh, we made investments between kind of a seed stage investment to a $10 million investment and then did some follow-ons in some of our companies. But I was there through making the first seven investments. And at that point, kind of an intersection of things happened. And, and for me, it was as much a personal inquiry as it was a professional inquiry. And I was at a moment in my life where a lot of things had shifted. I had gone through cancer. I had a relationship and I was roughly 20 years into my career and thinking about how do I want to spend the next 20 years? And I was also just starting to notice a pattern that had come up for me of finding an amazing opportunity, going after that opportunity, working hard to figure out what the rules of that game were and do a great job and never really asking myself, what do I want to do? What am I really great at? What are my gifts? What do I have to offer? What are the problems out there that I see that need solving? And what is the intersection of all those things? And I had an awesome career. I mean, I'd gotten to do so many cool things by just chasing opportunities and I just wasn't fulfilled and it wasn't lining up in the right way. So I took a big step back and that was a really scary thing to do. But out of that, I became really clear that I wanted to work with the people side of business. I sometimes tell people what I realized is that if I could cut one, well, two things out of my life, when I did that reflection, I was like, if I could cut legal documents and spreadsheets out of my life, everything would be better. Two things that I am like competent at, but not particularly skilled at. And it was funny because I had some feedback not before I did this 360 process, but I had some feedback from people when I started thinking about something else. And they said, you should go be a CFO or don't you want to go back and practice law? And I just thought, oh my God, I'm so misunderstood. Those are the last things that I want to go do. And so that was a little bit of a wake up for me in terms of thinking about, you know, how do I actually want to contribute? And that led me to reach into my network and talk to other people who were working with kind of what I think of as that people or human side of business and really reflect on what are the pieces that I really loved about all these different jobs that I'd had. And I loved supporting our teams in strategic planning sessions. I loved mentoring our CEOs. I loved thinking about how do we solve relational problems within our companies. And I also looked across our portfolio of companies and I thought about some of the issues they were facing. And we could help them build a better model or find a better distribution channel or make the connections that they needed on the business side. But what I realized is that when we weren't solving the human problems, we really weren't solving their underlying problems. So Totem was born out of kind of all of those things coming together. I met two people in this search who, when I connected with them, well, one person in particular was much more of a personal connection. I was connected with Jim Knudsen, who runs a consulting firm called Cast and or Cast Knudsen. And he and I got lunch and I sat down with him and I thought, I want to do what you do. You do really cool transformational work. And then the other person really well known in the Boulder community was Sue Heilbrunner, who I've known for a very long time. I reached out to her as I was in this search and thinking about what what. I knew I wanted to do that human side, but what would it actually look like? And when I talked to Sue and she caught me up on the work that she's been doing in the conscious leadership framework and the impact it's had and how it's impacted her path, it was so funny because she stopped midstream and she was like, 
you'd be great at this. And I was like, something just struck me. And she really kindly invited me to see her work. And when I sat there and watched her work, I thought, I can do this. This is what I want to do. This is amazing. This is really cool. So I found some mentors and that's what really got me on this path. And I just put myself out there and reached out to some of the companies I'd been working with and said, hey, you know how I've been supporting you as an investor and you've just been calling and we chat about how things are going. Like, would you pay for that? And a couple of them said yes. And that was it. We were off to the races. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. That sounds like an important journey to getting to, you know, what makes you happy and and what turns you on there. When uh, just a, a brief question on this topic, when you entered into some of these conversations and you just started the coaching journey, you know, it strikes me that so much of the work you do is interpersonal. You know, there's probably a fair amount of sort of emotional, psychological, maybe even spiritual aspects to what you explore. When you first started socializing the idea, was it steeped in in the business side of things? Was it did you have to approach it as as maybe a bit more cut and dry sort of business advice? And has it evolved from there? Or was it were you able to kind of quickly connect the importance of, you know, an, an empathetic coaching experience? Yeah. Really great question and one that nobody's ever asked me before, but I knew intuitively and I knew immediately that it was going to be much more interpersonal and that kind of empathetic experience. And I was a little bit scared to put myself out in the world in that way. And so during my first, I would say six to nine months for sure, I really positioned myself based on my business experience, because that felt like something I could stand up behind. And once I engaged with people, it really quickly spread beyond that and became so much more than that. And I realized as I was kind of steeping myself in everything I could read and getting advice from my mentors and watching them work and having experiences with my own coach and sort of that that the stuff I was really interested in wasn't helping somebody like figure out their sales distribution models. It was a little bit of a Trojan horse. I felt like I was like, I could get in and we could talk about the business problems. And then we could realize that the other problems were really what was underlying. Now I feel much braver and more confident and straightforward about how I can be helpful. And I also have more clear boundaries about the distinction between coaching and consulting. And I'm really clear that I'm a coach and I'm not a consultant. It was a little muddy in the beginning because they did feel like that was an entry point that seemed valid to me. But that's really was about my own confidence. (laughs) That that reflected where I was as much as anything else. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I could see how that would be the case. And and certainly, you know, it might be easier to introduce yourself as more of the consulting role. But I, I think coaching is becoming more and more popular and and I think diving diving deep and having, you know, serious conversations about life and meaning and work and and how they're all intertwined, you know, seemingly are are becoming much more popular. And so I think, you know, anyone who's had that coaching experience understands, you know, immediately, oh, this is nothing like a consultant. This is actually, you know, a therapist, a mentor, an advisor, a sounding board, you know, all those, all those things rolled to one that happen to understand the context within your operating. But that's very cool that you've you've made that transition. And so in doing that, I know that you did a personal 360 for yourself. And also, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that you do in your practice is you help facilitate professional 360s in a work environment. 
So would love to hear sort of a, how you came to that personal 360 concept and also what the similarities or differences are from a maybe a more professional version of that. Yeah. So the personal 360 for me happened first. That happened while I was in the midst of really that personal and professional exploration. You know, I can think, I can talk about it as a career search, but there was so much more personal growth happening during that time. I really realized that I was not feeling fulfilled and I had been playing out some of the same patterns over and over again. And I had kind of a new awareness around those patterns and wanted to figure out how to do something differently. And I just didn't know if I had the resources to really make those choices without getting some more feedback from other people. And I should say that a lot of this came out of an experience of going to the Hoffman process in St. Helena, California, which was an incredible week of self-discovery for me and an experience that was, for me, in many ways, the jumping off point for a lot of this. And when I came back through my conversation with Sue, actually, I was introduced to the Conscious Leadership Framework. There's a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. I'm a huge fan of their work. And when I read that, I thought, oh, this is like Hoffman for work. This is really cool. Like there are a lot of these same components that show up in different places and they take concepts that show up in a lot of different traditions and kind of self-inquiry and personal growth. And they just make it really relatable and easy to digest. And it's actually through their work that I got the idea for the personal 360. So they, at some point, I think it's in the book, but I've gone through so many of their resources. I'm not actually sure where I saw it, but there was a suggestion of reaching out to the people in your world. And it just struck me as something that would be really vulnerable, a little bit scary and possibly helpful. And so using their framework as a guideline, I put together, gosh, I'd have to look, but it's probably like eight questions in my own personal 360. And I, in anticipation of this conversation, I hadn't really gone back and looked at it in a while, but I I went back and looked and I probably sent it to 25 people. So I went pretty broad. I did not get responses from a lot of people, which was fine, but I wanted to know, and here, maybe I can share some of the questions. So here are the questions that I asked. I asked, what are five words you would use to describe me? What am I doing or talking about when you experience me the most energized and happy? When you experience me at my best, the exact thing I'm doing is something you would like to see more from me is I would be more successful if I would be more powerful if You hear me repeatedly complain about an issue you see me or saw me unwilling to shift is how have I most contributed to your life and what would you miss most about my presence if I were no longer in your life? And I made a few shifts to that depending on who I was sending it to. I had a sort of a few different groups and it was terrifying. It like felt so empowering to put the questions together. And then when I hit send and sent it off to the people on my email list, I just, my hands broke out in the sweat and my heart started pounding. And I thought, oh no, sure. what are the people in my life going to say about me? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, what an incredible experience. Cause I think when you do something like that in a work environment, it's easy to divorce feedback you're getting to your, your professional persona from who you are as a person. But here there's there's really nothing to hide behind. And I think that's both what's powerful about it, but super scary as well. Yeah, for sure. And then I have to say, I kind of had the reverse experience and maybe reverse isn't the right way to describe it. But I guess what I would say is that 
I felt so vulnerable sending it out. And then as I read responses, I found myself disappointed in the responses that were just really like, we just think you're great. Like everything is amazing. And I was like, I'm not learning anything from that. Like you guys are really nice. You're really nice friends. Like, thank you. But I had some people who were really honest with me. And I, a few years later, still look back on that and think about how that has strengthened my trust in that relationship and how that has deepened my connection with those people and the pieces that I've been able to take from that to grow. And I think that's because the feedback was really, it was always coming from a place of love, but it was really full of truth. And that was so much more valuable to me, right? It was something that I could really work with. But you'll notice most of my questions are pretty positive. You know, there is a little bit of a like, you know, what could I do? I don't, I didn't just want, I wasn't just looking for like positive feedback. I did want some concrete suggestions of where I should go. And I did that before I had really explored what professional 360s looked like. I'd love to just pause here and ask a little bit more about the personal experience, because I think the idea of A, being vulnerable with other people and how powerful that can be as a catalyst to entrench relationships or or build trust. And it sounds like that's been the case with a few of the folks, but it's really, it sounds like it was those people who, who took up the mantle and gave you what you were really asking for. And I think that's an interesting topic and one I've had with a few different people in the past. Just talking about, you know, I, I personally really like critical feedback, you know, mm-hmm. constructive, of course, but I love going out there and looking for criticism because I don't know how else to get better, make my ideas better, make my presentation or company or whatever better. And so what I've found, though, is that it's actually really hard to get good critical feedback from people because there's an aversion to being candid. And especially when you present as somebody who maybe has a a cohesive thought that they're sharing or that there's some Mm -hmm. level of confidence in, in who you are or what you're about. I think that there's this natural feeling of, well, they've got, you know, they know what they're good at or they understand what they're doing. And so who am I to share this feedback? Even mm-hmm. from people that you might hold in very high regard, I think there's still that feeling of, you know, to what end am I gonna am I gonna share this? It's just gonna potentially be awkward and it's gonna take a certain amount of energy and it's going to be something that feels uncomfortable. So even though it's uncomfortable to, for you to ask, I think it's also really uncomfortable for people to share candidly. And it's something where I think where I've taken this thought before is you really have to be an active participant in creating the environment to make someone else feel comfortable to share that feedback. And maybe sometimes it's not possible. I don't know. But I think that's an interesting aspect of this. I think that's a really interesting aspect. And one of the things that I didn't remember until I went back and looked at this earlier this morning was that one of the people who gave me some really honest feedback, who's still a very close friend, when I I read kind of what she wrote before she wrote her answers. And she said, I'm really nervous to send this to you. She said, I hope this is still helpful. I hope you understand this is filled with love and respect. And I think that that goes to exactly what you're saying, right? It is really scary. And I was thinking about this actually yesterday as I was talking to one of my coaching clients. They have embraced radical candor in their company, sort of followed some of that book. And we were talking about some work with another framework that's very well known, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And we were talking about the necessary element of 
trust to these conversations. So in Radical Candor, they talk about you have to be really high on the care scale in order to actually give radically candid feedback to somebody. So you have to have that level of trust and love in order to be able to share openly and honestly, even if somebody's inviting it. And if you think about it from the five dysfunctions of a team, like if you think about each level of, you know, Pat Lencioni's pyramid as a necessary element for the next one, in order to have healthy conflict, which is the second level tier, you have to have trust. And I think that for me, that comes to the forefront in something like this, like you might be in a place where you're feeling like, come on, bring it on. Like, tell me all the tough stuff. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. But in some ways, I think that the feedback that you get back is actually a reflection of the relationship and the level of trust that you've built. It's also a reflection of their sense of security in your relationship. It's also some reflection of you know their personality and their level of risk-taking because there is a, a level of risk and vulnerability for them to actually be really honest as well. I think a significant level. But for me, when I think back on the people who are willing to be really open with me, I think they're both very settled within themselves and also just willing to take that leap. And for me, at least, that really paid off because that strengthened it. But I know that there were people who probably have very valuable feedback for me who didn't feel like they could give it or wanted to give it for whatever reason. And maybe there's something there for me to think about and how to really deepen those relationships in a more gentle and maybe less you know, kind of harsh way, something that doesn't fit everybody else's style. Something that I've been considering in, in trying to design a a similar experience for myself is whether or not to anonymize the feedback. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, or if there are other ideas you have that you think might've increased the response rate or the candor or just the efficacy. That's a really interesting question because I think it's, it's, always out there. I think we always wonder if we'll get better feedback if we give a person an opportunity to not be seen, right? An opportunity to be anonymous. Now that I've, and I'll save some of this for later, but now that I'm doing the professional 360s the way I am, I've actually come to believe that anonymity is a sign of a broken feedback loop, right? That if part of what we're trying to do is build virtuous cycles of feedback and build deeper, more meaningful, authentic, trusting relationships. Part of our work is to try to build that foundation so that it really does feel okay to give each other feedback. And there's a lot more work in that than sending out the right survey questions. So (laughs) I think there's a question there of kind of what your end goal is, right? If the feedback's really the end goal, you might get better feedback or you might get more feedback if it's anonymous. If your goal is in part to really build a longer term cycle of communication and connection that will help you grow over a longer period of time, I would make a pretty strong argument that you don't want this to be anonymous. That's interesting. I still do work in companies. So just from a very high level, the work that I do with 360s in companies is a very intensive interview style. Like we go really deep. And sometimes companies still do that in conjunction with like a survey that's sent out much broader and maybe anonymous. And part of that is to get like just the pulse on the organization and to go much deeper in the organization to get a sense of, 
you know, what people's feelings are. And I don't mind those surveys being anonymous, but they're kind of choosing like on a scale of one to five, how satisfied are you? And maybe they get to write some comments. But on the one-to-one piece, I have now seen the power of really constructive feedback. And it's obviously, I'm, it's highly facilitated in helping people give the right kind of feedback, which this personal 360 is not, unless you choose somebody to help facilitate the process. And I think because of that, it's actually designed to create a positive experience. And it's a little more Wild West when you just send it to your friends and say, hey, tell me all the things that I could do better. There isn't anybody helping them feel comfortable in the way that they're phrasing it and giving them some feedback, which is part of the professional process. So they're kind of on their own. They like have to decide to take the leap or not. That's interesting. You know, I think one of the driving factors behind wanting to do this is this notion of perceptual asymmetry, right? Where it's so easy and it comes so naturally to understand, you know, your point of view on things, how you're perceiving other people's actions. And as human beings, we digest everything in, in narrative fashion. So we come up with stories about, you know, other people's actions, the events that happen, you know, our own feelings about things. And it's so much more difficult to understand where another person is coming from, just from sort of a natural way, whether it's a, a spouse or a close friend or a coworker, there's always that that disconnect of you don't have full certainty about where they're coming from with something that you know you do when you're when you're asserting point of view or or when you're taking a certain action. And that sounds like something that's so so fundamentally simple but at the same time is, is kind of the underpinning of, of all this, which is, can I become more self-aware about the way that I'm perceived and how my actions affect other people and how I can effectively lead them or how can I can effectively pursue more rewarding relationships? And so, you know, going off of what you were saying about is the feedback the goal or is the communication feedback loop the goal? It's interesting because I think, it, you know, to some degree, it's both, right? It, it, if you're asking these people mm-hmm. in your inner circle, those are probably some of the people that are most important to you. But at the same time, it's that super candid feedback that's going to allow you to to be thoughtful around what they're saying. And it's not as though you're going to be constantly, you know, having conversations with them about, well, what I do wrong this time? What I do, you know, how can I be better at this one? (laughs) Right. Unlike a work environment, right? Where, you know, in in a work environment, you know, you want to reinforce those uh, habits where, hey, if something happened, you need to address it. If you saw something that that concerned you, you need to give that feedback to that person. While, while you want that, I think with your friends and family, there's less of that systematic implementation of, are we putting the best workout today possible? Are we, are we building the most <laughs> cohesive team possible? So as I'm just thinking about it for my own purposes, that question of, do you want to do it for the feedback or do you want to do it to reinforce the relationships? It's almost, for me, it's almost the feedback will help me understand if that, (laughs) which is more important. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that let's say, you know who it is and there are people from whom you get sort of maybe less fulfilling responses, right. That it feels like they're kind of glossing over things and you, you just have a sense that given your relationship with a particular person, there's probably some more there. There's an opportunity. I mean, there's just information in every step of this, right? There's an opportunity for you to reflect on how can I build a more open and trusting relationship with this person? How do I help them feel safe doing this and create a a dynamic where 
we can have these kinds of conversations because it would be really helpful for me. I think there's a personality element to this too. I have a strong personality and I know that I, especially after some of this feedback, I know even better that like that doesn't always create space for other people to approach in their own way. And that's something that I'm working on. That's something I'm trying to be a lot more thoughtful about. And I don't think I ever saw myself that way. That was one of the inconsistencies that came up for me in some of my feedback was that other people can sometimes feel a little intimidated that I can come off as really competitive and that I have like a little bit of an edge to me. And I've since connected that with actually feeling that's when I'm feeling a little bit insecure, right? Like there's a whole nother level to that for me. And I think that through that awareness, I realized that processes like these, where you're like, just tell me, like, just give it to me, right? The people that are able to meet me in that place are also people with strong personalities. And they tend to be people who are really settled within themselves, right? So you're, you're kind of pushing these two dynamics against each other. And if I come with a lot of energy and a lot of intensity, and I'm asking these really vulnerable, intense questions. And I'm like, it's okay, just tell me. There are plenty of people whose like, orientation in the world, they're like, whoa, this feels like a lot. <laughs> like, I don't even want to step into that ring. Like, You're telling me I'm safe, but yeah, I think we're going to tread lightly here. And I think I just, I have to have a lot of respect for that. And I think it's one of the places that has offered me a huge opportunity for self-reflection. There's something I'll share. When I came back from Hoffman, there's a woman in my life who's probably my mom's age. She's just a wonderful person. And I connected with her and she said, I've never seen you so soft and so powerful. And I keep this by my desk, soft and powerful. This is my reminder. And that to me was one of the nicest compliments I'd ever received because I had gotten feedback from people as we've always seen you as powerful, but I rarely see you as soft. And when I can hold those two things together, then I'm holding space, right? So then I bring the powerful where I can hold space for other people with a similar level of intensity to be vulnerable, which is part of what I think makes me a good coach and able to coach people at a high level. And when I can bring the softness, I actually create space for more people in my life to create connection with me. And that, I think at the moment when I sent out my personal 360, I don't think I had enough softness to create enough space for a wider range of people. And maybe if I were to do it again, I guess that would be my own kind of litmus. I would love to believe that I am able to create space for more feedback from more people now. But I think that's a reflection of me. The softness piece resonates. And I would ask you, how much of that softness is directed inward at yourself when you think about yourself and your opportunities to get better? I mean, I, in my experience, it's easy to share that softness outward. It's much more mm-hmm. difficult to direct it inwardly. And, and particularly in this context where, you know, my mind is, well, let me get all this valuable criticism so I can understand <laughs> yeah. what, you know, what I'm lacking or, or how I can get better. And then I can just sort of, you know, ruthlessly apply this new data to myself and become better at it. And there's not a lot of softness, frankly, in my, in my internal sort of thought process and in, in why to do this. That's actually feedback I've gotten from coaches and others before is, 
you know, I, uh, similarly to you, I, I like to intensely engage around these ideas. I like to think about how can I get stronger? How can I grow more? How can I be more thoughtful? You know, all these sorts of things, but there's an underlying intensity about it that isn't particularly soft, but it's attractive to me, right? It's this idea of, well, Mm -hmm. you're, you're ruthlessly improving the system that is your life, that is your persona, that is, you know, effectively what your existence is. So why not approach that in the most sort of intense calculating way possible? Um, But uh, (laughs) (laughs) that also might be missing mark to some degree. Well, that takes me back to our first conversation around this, right? And I think that when you think about what science tells us about where growth comes from. I mean, you certainly can grow from criticism. There's no doubt about that. Um, But when I, as I understand some of the research around long-term behavioral change, most of that is, has to come from a place with some self-compassion and some direction towards something as opposed to just away from something. So it's actually easier to move towards something that we specifically are trying to do more of, like, positive behavior that we're trying to do more of than it is to actually cut out negative behavior. And I think that there can be a little bit of an addictive quality. I don't know if this is true for you, but to this like concept of optimization, I see this in some of my coaching clients 100%. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And they're like, more pain is more gain, right? Like tell me the hard stuff. Like I had a client yesterday who asked me repeatedly, do you think there's something wrong with me? Do you think this means that I was like, I'm not a doctor and I don't think there's anything wrong with you. Like, let's just talk about like, what are the pieces of this that are working and how can we lean into those? But I think without that self-compassion piece, um, without kind of an acceptance of where you are and that you are great, just exactly where you are and how you are, it's hard to create the space to really grow in a way that's going to stick over the long term. And I also, and this is partly based just on my own experience. I mean, I can relate to what you said about like, well, it's easy to be soft outwardly. And I think I also misjudged. I thought I was being softer outwardly than I was like, because that was where my intention was coming from. But my experience has been that when I'm not soft inwardly, which was all the time, I was very, very hard on myself and still can be, people perceive that difference. It's subtle, right? But they experience it. They may not be able to name it, but they experience it. And so when you can soften inwardly, then you actually soften all over. And if you can't soften inwardly, they still sense that like edge and kind of harshness that you're turning towards yourself and other people kind of experience that. So anyway, I just think that even though we think that those there's kind of a separation between inward and outward, I think that they're much less separated than one might think. And I do think that, you know, my experience, again, I'll go back to and some of the professional 360s I do is that we need to have specific actionable things that we can move towards. Even the toughest, thickest skinned person can hear all this criticism and think, okay, but then it's like, now what? (laughs) Like you're going to have so much clarity around like not wanting to do what you're doing or be the way you're being, but it's not always easy to figure out how to shift that until you can kind of bring some gentleness to why you are that way. And then some direction to how do you move 
forward from that. So I think when our last conversation, what I said to you was, what if you were to cultivate some self-compassion and what if you're optimized in this very moment? And yeah, we were to just figure that out. And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, it's funny. The addiction to optimization certainly strikes close to home. And I think that I don't come to it from the standpoint of there's something wrong with me. I think maybe mm-hmm. years ago that that was the case and there was some, maybe some in, inherent self-loathing in that, but I don't struggle with that anymore. But I do have, as I look at my life, there's a very clear correlation between pain and growth. And in fact, like mm-hmm. that was, you know, kind of the underpinning of, of some of the um, motivation to do this podcast is the exploration of that. But you know, both personally and professionally, the hardest things that I've gone through or the most painful things that I've gone through or the trauma that I've experienced, those things have been catalysts for the most most growth, the most learning, the most ability to to empathize with other people and understand the world. And so maybe to some degree that's resulted in this like almost fetishization of pain. But it's at the same Mm -hmm. time, you know, there's that Viktor Frankl quote of, you know, you don't need to go looking for it. Life's going to provide plenty of it. And it's about, you know, practicing what it, you know, the recommitment to your principles and and to growing and to embracing it when it does happen. So I think there's a bit of a distinction there, right, between going and, and looking for pain too much versus just being really present with what's going on in, in the current moment. And I think probably I struggle a little bit with finding the right balance of that, but it's based off of my experience of, God, all these hard things have made me better. Mm-hmm. So why not keep going out and looking for hard things? Hmm. I mean, I think there's a choice there, right? Do you really want to keep creating many traumas in your life? in order to keep growing? I mean, there's sort of kind of a question in that, right? And I think part of what you're saying is, yes, maybe I do. Maybe the output is is worth it to me to create that. I think there's an exploration there of what are other ways, right? Like, are there other paths to the same thing for you? Yeah, and I think that may well be the case. I think there's that parallel with business again, and right, this is a, this whole sort of exercise is is one that I think is, is born out of the, optimization of a team or, or a business to some extent, but it's something that I've, I've talked about with previous guests and, you know, whether it's challenging your organization or, you know, like a self-traumatization of your organization coming back and saying, Hey, we need to shift. And it's, you know, this is especially powerful. I think when organizations are at the peak of their abilities to come back and say, no, we need to fundamentally challenge what we're doing. Otherwise, you know, we're going to lose our relevancy or lose our edge or or what have you. And there's that that Andy Grove quote of only the paranoid survive, or, you know, he's he's got a bunch of them, right? But uh, talking about the great companies are the ones that are made better by by failure or, or trauma, or I forget the, the word he uses. But, um, you know, so to the degree it parallels organizational thought or organizational psychology, there does seem to be that connection, at least with, you got to come back and challenge what you're taking for granted or what the status quo is. I'd love your thoughts on that. The question that came up for me is actually not a direct answer to that question. So I'll hold my thought for a second. I think from an organizational perspective, I would come back to Viktor Frankl, actually. I just think that there are enough things that happen that we don't often need to create more issues. 
sure. in order to make ourselves stronger. That doesn't mean you don't model out different scenarios, right? And understand what your downside model looks like so that you have a clear idea of feeling, you know, protected in a certain scenario, or you don't do disaster planning, right? You don't think about what happens if one of our manufacturing facilities shuts down. But to me, there's a distinction between the hypothetical and actually creating many traumas. And the question that came up for me as you were talking is, is what is the downside of creating these traumas? Like what's the impact either on the people around you or on like, this doesn't happen just in a vacuum, right? There's some impact. And so I think there's a consideration there of, of what is that impact? And is that worth it? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, just going back to your initial sharing of, of the 360, right? The, it strengthened the relationships where people responded really positively. Did it negatively impact the relationships where people felt less than comfortable with it, I wonder? I actually don't know, right? Like, because that's an example of like a little self, on their end. It's a mini self-trauma, sure. right? Yeah. It could be perceived that way. Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of depends on the questions you ask. Yeah. And it also depends on the approach. And it also depends on their perception of like the intensity of the approach, right? <laughs> so if I were just to completely guess, I would guess that there are some people who got my email and were like, oh my God, like what is she doing? <laughs> like I thought she was crazy, but now I know she's crazy. <laughs> or she's super, you know, I don't know what judgments might've come up or what thoughts might've come up for them, but I can imagine, I could build stories around sure. a whole lot of those. So I don't really know. Like I wouldn't want to do that all the time. Sure, right? yep. I think it would take something away from our relationship. So there's definitely some impact there. It's also just a significant ask to have somebody really like step back and reflect in that way. And if I think about what I would do differently, if I were to do that again, I think I would build in a little bit more. There's some of this in there, but I would build in a little bit more of the specific, like, what would you like to see more of from me? And I think that comes up in like, I would be more powerful if, you know, questions like that. But it's not super helpful to have somebody say, for example, I think I referenced this earlier, something along the lines of like, I don't experience you this way, but I know that other people can experience you as really competitive and intense and like that you have this edge that you're not approachable. And like, I don't know why I feel differently about like, I don't experience that like we're good friends, but you should know that, right? Like that's a truth, especially in a work environment. And, but I didn't hear like, how do I change that? Because I don't know, I don't feel that way, right? Like I don't, it's not conscious or it wasn't conscious, right? Now I bring consciousness to try not to be that way, but I don't know what to do with that. So I think if I were to do it again, and maybe this goes to this idea of like, maybe de-traumatizing this a little bit. Yeah. So like, how do you kind of soften the approach on something that can get you to the same output and maybe have, give you a more constructive output, something more to work with at the end of it, and also minimize the impact on your relationships in a negative, put the potential negative impact on your relationships. That makes sense. So that's what I would think about as I would craft it. And I think part of my emotional reaction when I hear you be like, I want to traumatize myself, like bring it on. You know, I think a little bit about like, I get that for you. 
and you're in this system with all these other people. And there are probably some people for whom like they will totally meet you there and that'll be great. And there's other people for whom like that's a lot for them to figure out how to respond to. Yes, a hundred percent. There are those people in my call it inner circle that would totally get what I was going for, say, oh, this is really cool and be very energized, willing participants. And there are other people that are very, very dear to me that would feel wildly uncomfortable with this, with this exercise. (laughs) And so it's, it's interesting to think about it from that context, right? Do you want to share it with everybody or do you just want to share it with the folks that you're predicting are, are going to be highly engaged around it? Or, you know, maybe some people will surprise you. I don't know. But I think I was surprised. Yeah. Were you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I could have predicted who I would have gotten responses from. Interesting. Yeah. So I I think, you know, to, if you want to probably have a successful experience with something like this, you have to expose as much surface area as, as possible or as is relevant. And I think, you know, one other thing is this notion of quote unquote self trauma feels like it almost feels like hyperbolic to a certain degree. Right. So when I think of trauma for me personally, I think of losing my little sister to call Mm -hmm. like any kind of exercise that I would do in, in self critique or anything like that. Trauma feels like a, almost like a misuse of the word, but it's also, I don't know that there's a better word to use for it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I like these challenges, but I guess in my mind, I'm having, going back to the softness question, I think I struggle with where's the line and where's the balance in having this constant commitment to growth and experiencing challenges that can be overcome versus a softness with yourself and thereby those around you and an acceptance of, of what is. And I guess, I I think for Mm -hmm. me, it's really that last piece and acceptance of what is. And there's a, I think Mm -hmm. I struggle with, there's a fundamental belief for me that what is, isn't good enough today or isn't, or there's a, there's a lack there Mm -hmm. that I want to bridge. And I think that's some of the driving factor of the optimization. Mm -hmm. I could be spending my hours better. I could be, you know, I could have better habits. I could have better compliance with, you know, whatever nutritional or fitness or meditation paradigm that I'm trying to, you know, trying to pursue. Mm -hmm. I could work harder. I could work longer. I could be more committed to relationships. I could be less selfish. So all these things seem like positive pursuits, but they also all come from this fundamental belief that they're not as good as they could be. What came up for me as you were talking is the sense of like constant motion that you're always doing something and just being, which I can completely relate to that kind of energy is really hard. Like you said, being accepting what is right. And so it can be exhausting to be in constant do mode. And it's a huge output of energy to be even just tracking all the things that you're tracking, right? If I imagine like you go from your meditation to your breakfast, to your workout, or like, I don't know exactly how your day works, but I'm imagining kind of a vigilance on all these different pieces. And then a sense of optimization, like how do I get better? And what do I get out? Why do I do that? Is it because it then helps me feel like I'm doing something productive towards becoming a better person? Like there's no end game, right? You're never going to hit a point where you're like, ta-da, I'm optimized. (laughs) There's no end game, right? (laughs) Totally. And what comes up for me is really like 
what do you miss by being constantly in doing mode? Like, what are you not creating space to just feel? Like talking about meditation, right? In its best form, meditation is a space in which like feelings can kind of come and go and we can observe and it creates a space for things to arise that maybe don't have space in the rest of our lives. And I know as a fellow doer, that sometimes for me, my meditation is like, I'm going to do it better today. Like there is like, I'm going to go longer. I'm going to go harder. I'm going to achieve in some way. And I think if you get into any, you know, Buddhist philosophy or some of the other kind of approaches to the world in which there is some, like, it's a very Western thing for us to be constantly filling our minds and our days with optimization and achievement right? And I think that creating, there's just an inquiry there for you around like, what are you not feeling? Because you're filling all your, so much of your energy with optimization. Like what happens if you just accept how things are? What comes up for you? Is that scary? Yeah. I think there's a sense of not moving forward and not maximizing life, right? You've got a finite finite amount of of time on the earth. And I think what drives me is this notion of, I want to look back and make sure that I think, you know, I I use my time wisely. And so there's, I think on one hand, there are times when I definitely feel that drive to, I don't want to be mindful. I want to be mindless and not, you know, either be super consumed with something to the point where, you know, everything else fades away and I don't have to think about whatever it is that I'm, that I'm thinking about because I I probably Mm -hmm. have a tendency to obsess about some of these ideas. So I find myself Mm -hmm. drawn to things that can deliver that. So that's probably where that goes is, you know, even with meditation, which is, has been incredibly impactful to my life. It's still this thing that I approach with intensity and a sense of, you know, this is something that'll make me better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where I think there's space for the exploration is like, what happens if you stop trying so hard all the time? Like, are you still okay? Like what comes up that you don't even know might come up? What's really scary or what feels empty if you aren't trying to get to the next level? What would happen if you actually were optimized? Yeah. And it actually, it goes with an idea that was introduced to me recently which is that it's a false dichotomy. Like those two Mm -hmm. ideas can exist. You can be Mm -hmm. perfect in this moment, exactly the way you are and all is right with the world. And also you can be a little bit better in the next Mm -hmm. moment. And those Mm -hmm. ideas don't have to be, they don't have to be at odds with each other. I mean, so that's, that's something I've been spending more time with lately is thinking about both those things are true. Yeah. Yeah. And what a cool space if you can hold both of those things, right? Because it actually does create some space. If you can, I think that that, like, if you're approaching that idea of things are okay as they are, that to me creates, I have a sense of spaciousness around that. And then you're like, but I'm also holding this thing where like, yes, and I see opportunity. I think the question then if we take it back to this idea of like self-trauma and and personal 360s is like with the, yes, I can be better. Do you go do things to create more opportunities to be better? Or 
are you allowing what is, right? Are you allowing that experience to come into your world and then taking it from there? And this will probably be a lifelong journey of figuring out what that balance looks like. I think so, yeah. I mean, it sounds as you're saying that to me, what I'm hearing is, you know, there's that coming to it from a foundation of there is inherent lack versus coming Mm -hmm. to it from a, you know, a point of view of look at all these opportunities, look at all this abundance that I can go pursue Mm -hmm. and grow into. And I think that, yeah, that there's sort of that underlying current there is, is it lack or is it abundance? Yeah. And maybe even if it's not abundance, it's sufficiency. Yeah. Like that's the word that came to mind for me. Like it's enough. It's okay. Yeah. It's enough. I'm enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at least for me, that was one of, that was the lesson from Hoffman was you're enough. And that's something I would have told you I thought I felt, but after going through that experience, I was like, Oh no, that's been driving me. Like that has driven me for achievement. The idea that I'm not enough has driven me both to achieve in ways that I have brought a lot of good things into my life and to probably that's a part of like that intensity and competitiveness of needing to prove myself, which has also brought really positive things and is also probably created division in some of my relationships and my ability to really connect. I spent a lot of time like comparing myself, you know, I don't, if I had what she or he had, if I had that job, if I had that experience, you know, whatever it was, was fueling a lot of things. And so for me, at least to sit in the idea that like, I'm enough exactly how I am, even though my critical mind is so trained to say, but you could be better at this and this and this and this. And you said that wrong thing in that conversation and you didn't handle that quite right. And like you came off too intense for that person or you pulled back and like the pendulum swung the other way and you didn't engage. Like I could write you a, you know, a dissertation on all the things I should be doing better. That's a lifetime of optimization. (laughs) But the practice for me, like that's the easy part. But the part I need to balance the scales is to actually genuinely sit in like the idea that I'm enough. And I think part of what my experience has been is that as I do that, and I don't do it successfully all the time, but as I do it and get better at it and build on it, I'm seeing positive results in my life. I feel happier. I feel more relaxed. My relationships are better. I'm making choices that are more aligned with who I really am as opposed to who I think I should be in this world. And those things are building on each other. And so I'm getting positive reinforcement. So it gets a little bit easier to build on that side of the scale. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think that positive reinforcement can't be, you know, that's such a powerful piece of, you know, understanding what's working and what's not working. I do want to ask though, you know, we've we've explored this personal 360 concept. How has this mm-hmm. affected the way that you do it in a work environment? And is that same notion of, oh, just the way we are today is fine? Do you still think that way when you're doing this for for teams? I still want my, what's, they're not all CEOs, but sort of C-suite folks, my clients, right? I still want my clients to understand that they are enough, right? That there is a lot of opportunity in what they're offered by their peers through this process. And it's not a to-do list. Like just because somebody gives you feedback and says you need to be a different way doesn't mean you actually need to be that way. 
there are lots of things that that might be reflecting. So it's still rooted in that sense. I hear where you, what you're saying, though, like there's so much opportunity for an organization and for a leader to be better. Can we hold both is really kind of where we're going with that is like, look at all the things you're doing really well. Look at how people appreciate you. And they want to see more of this particular behavior. So my own personal 360 certainly influenced the way I approached 360s in companies and has continued to influence that and also help me evolve that process. When I first started doing 360s, I just didn't see a framework out there. There's so many different frameworks, but I didn't see one that I really liked. And part of what I kept seeing that I didn't like is that it was really like, it was a very closed system and it was kind of setting people up to be informants in this anonymous world where they could just tell me all of the terrible things about this person that they work with. And then I was going to somehow magically like fix that person and they would never have to look that person in the eye and they would never really have to acknowledge that that was something that they said. But I could be the one to deliver like the tough news and say, and let me tell you, when I first started doing them and I was following some of these more traditional frameworks, it was so predictable, but the client just skims. They don't even read the positive stuff. All anybody wants to do is just, okay, tell me the bad stuff. Like (laughs) it's sort of that, you know, silly old thing about a feedback sandwich. Like nobody heard the good things on the front and the back, right? Nobody. They're not even barely going to remember them. They're just bracing themselves to hear the bad stuff. And so as I've evolved that process, I found an amazing new framework called Shift Positive 360. They have just done a beautiful job in building a framework that aligns with how I was thinking about it, and they did it even better. They're very research-based, kind of take a geeky approach, which I really appreciate. And two things I love about their system, one is that they take a positive psychology approach. And that is where a lot of that research around long-term behavioral change comes from, is this idea that we are so much more open to growth when we're able to hear the things that we're doing well, and the things that somebody wants to see more of than we are when we hear the things that somebody doesn't want to see. Because for most of us, and not everybody's as tough as you are, or maybe I am, (laughs) but for most of us, they hear the negative feedback and you just cringe a little. Like you kind of physically close down a little bit. You certainly emotionally close down a little bit. And then sometimes there's this kind of rebound, right? And that rebound means that they make a short-term change in response to that. They're like, okay, they hate it when I'm late to meetings. I'm going to be on time to meetings. And for like, Six months, they might be on time to meetings. But that came from this like stress place. It came from a really negative energetic place of like, they don't like me. And often comes from fear. If I don't change this, they won't like me. Like we're, we're human beings. We want to be liked and accepted by the people around us. Whereas if somebody says to them, gosh, when Michael leads meetings and he sends an agenda the night before and he's in the room before everybody else gets there. Our meetings go so well. He leads some of the best meetings I've ever been to when he does it that way. Like so different than being like, God dang it. He's late all the time. Like, I don't even think he cares about us. Like he's got more important things to do. Right. So there's just a really different way of integrating that. And this framework does a really wonderful job of framing everything in a positive way with very specific, actionable behaviors that somebody can move towards. And the other piece is that it's based in a human systems approach. And that is the idea that it's really hard to change by ourselves. 
most of us are not successful, especially over the long term of building new habits that really stick. It takes an incredible amount of energy and fortitude. And I don't know. I mean, I've struggled with it. I certainly know that even when I'm really determined, it's hard to keep it up over time. And what they do is they really see the people that you're interviewing as allies in the development. And they not only engage them over a longer term in creating feedback, but they, the system of questions that I use when I use that process actually is as much about the person I'm interviewing as it is about my client. And part of what I'm helping them understand is their role in creating whatever dynamic they have and their ability to make shifts in that dynamic. And so, so often, you know, we think about like, if you and I worked together and I was complaining about something, I pretty much feel like you're doing something to me. Like, there's nothing I can do. You're just being a jerk or you're just, you know, not being thoughtful about something. But when we do this interview process, I actually help them see what could they do to change that dynamic? So I have them imagine like what an even better working relationship might be. And then I say, what's your role? What could you do over the next few months to help create that reality? And people are often like, oh, well, I could make sure that I'm getting him the information he needs so that he can build the agenda. And I'm like, awesome. Would you be willing to commit to doing that? And they're like, yeah, I could do that. And it's like this epiphany of like, oh my gosh, there's something I can do to shift that dynamic. And so my experience has been that even at the end of the interview process, when I haven't even like finished writing everything up and talking to everybody, that I've already created the seeds or planted the seeds for shift to change in that team dynamic. So the human systems approach and the positive psychology approach for me are huge shift from the way I'd been thinking about it before. There are some components of that that are integrated into the approach I took on my personal 360, but I would do it even different. I would do it even better now because what I would want that I didn't get was like very specific actionable things. And also to be able to go back to somebody, which I just didn't do, and to say, hey, Danielle, thank you for such amazing feedback. I really value your honesty and your candor. One of the things I've decided I want to work on is this, would it be okay if I checked back in with you in like six months and just got your feedback on it? Like, you don't have to do anything, but just maybe like have it in the back of your mind and think about whether you feel like I might be doing a better job at it. That is a great setup for a long-term change. Because honestly, what happened is I got all that great feedback and I might've like shot a note back that said like, hey, thanks, but then nothing. And then I'm kind of on my own. (laughs) And I'm on my own, not only to make the change, but also to assess whether I've made the change. I know from doing the process, I'm not a great, great at assessing myself anyway, because none of us are. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. And it makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things I, I picked up on that explanation on how you do both is that systems kind of thinking. So the 15 commitments of conscious leadership has that to me, by me, as me, through me sort of hierarchy. Ray Dalio talks about it as higher level systems thinking, but just this recognition <laughs> that you're part of a complex system. And that you're both trying to understand your personal self and that there might be certain feelings about you as an individual. But then if you bear some level of responsibility and, and arguably everyone does for the system that you're part of, you know, you need to think about how you exist in, in that as a system as opposed to, oh, all these things are happening to me. And then maybe I can be doing these things to another person, but it's a very sort of unilateral 
or maybe even bilateral consideration as opposed to, gosh, this is just so much, there's so much interrelatedness that it's almost hard to conceive of. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that that systems thinking is a really key piece of this, that we just don't operate alone, right? That's just not how the world works. And even as you're thinking about your personal 360 and thinking about reaching out to people, I mean, some of the things we've talked about is what is the system? What is the dynamic between you and that person? And how does that impact your ability to get really great feedback from somebody? And does it build your relationship or does it pull your relationship apart a little bit to do that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes me want to customize it a bit for each person to some degree. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'd be curious what you would shift depending on who you were talking about. But that's an interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about that. Well, lots to think about here. (laughs) Yeah. I would be curious your reflections on thinking about a personal 360. So it's certainly something that I plan to do. I think coming out Uh of this conversation, there are definitely some shifts that I'll make in the way that I'm probably going to go about it. Mm -hmm. You know, from a very practical standpoint, my thought was come up with a Google form that people can can kind of access and input their their information that way. You know, previously I had thought there's kind of a an opt in option for do you want it to be Mm -hmm. anonymous or not. So Mm -hmm. I'm still going to think about that a little bit. But you know, a, a number of the questions that I had were sort of steeped in this in this thought about lack or you know how can I get better as opposed Mm -hmm. to what are the positives that you experience about me now that potentially I can Mm -hmm. reinforce? And so I think that's, that's something I'd like to be more thoughtful about is not just, Hey, (laughs) give me compliments, but tell me about the positives that I can continue to spend more time reinforcing on. And maybe some of the, the things that I have an opportunity to grow on that might become positives down the road. You know, I think that's probably a much more, a much softer and more inviting way of bringing that feedback in. And so I think that's something I'm definitely going to going to be thoughtful about. And then I love the idea of, of going back and, and maybe picking one thing or a couple of things with individuals and saying, Hey, you know, over the next X amount of time, this is going to be a point that I'm going to spend a lot of time on because I thought, you know, I, I had that experience recently with a colleague I work closely with and we we take time on a regular basis to just have sort of thoughtful, high-level conversations around the way that we're relating to our work, to our business, to the team, et cetera. And he gave me feedback about something I was talking about. He said, oh yeah, you've certainly gotten a lot better at that over the last year or period of time. And I mm-hmm. just thought about like, oh, well, I know I've been putting energy into that, but also to hear somebody who you, you, know, you spend a fair amount of time with say, oh, I've noticed that change in you. I think that mm-hmm. is, as I'm thinking about this, a really nice positive reinforcement of it to say, oh, well, you know, yes, I know that I personally have been putting all this energy into getting better on this aspect, but to be able to hear, oh, there's been a market shift in, in my perception of you on that topic. I think that's a powerful thing to get that, that positive reinforcement. Now, as we're having that conversation, I think that's probably something that I wasn't giving enough mind to. So those are the ways that I am sort of thinking right now, but I'm fascinated by this process. And so uh, it's certainly something that I'm going to do, but I want to keep tweaking a little bit before I do it. I love it. Well, I'm really excited to uh, hear what your experience of it is. And I guess my best advice to you is don't overthink it too much. (laughs) 
people will opt in and opt out as they sure. feel comfortable. So you're never going to have it be just right. And maybe you'll do another one five years from now and you'll have a sense for what you'd like there. One little anecdote that came up for me as you were speaking is that it just reinforces what you just said is that my experience of actually doing the shift positive 360 is that when I have somebody give some really tough feedback, right? There's clearly a lot of emotion behind it. They're really frustrated about something. Something went poorly. They feel dismissed, whatever the experience was, right? I invite them to just share it as it is. And then together we shift it. But oftentimes what happens is that they will share it. And then they'll say, you're not going to put that in there, are you? Right? They get nervous, right? So they've shared it and they feel vulnerable. And they know that this is not going to be anonymous. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. They pull back, right? And so when we do that shift together of helping them say, move from what they don't like and what didn't work and what brings up all these feelings for them to what would it look like if he were to show up in a way that felt good? Like, what would that look like? By the time we have crafted that, they're like, okay, I feel good about that. And the receiving person can read that. And it's not like they don't know what the person was frustrated about, but they can take it in, in a way that actually allows them to create a good starting point for growth. And I think that's one of the things that I've really learned. And I think before using this process and before learning more about kind of how that long-term behavioral change worked, I was a little more abrasive. I was definitely like, just give me the hard stuff. Right. And I really believe that by creating a safer place for people to give the feedback, even if I don't need it as, as sort of framed as carefully to receive it, I'm creating an opportunity for them to share that they wouldn't have taken otherwise. That's very cool. That's what I think about in crafting the questions and in figuring out how to help them frame the questions, guiding them and helping frame their responses, I guess I should say. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're putting it in a way that other people can hear it better. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Well, Lauren, this has been super interesting to me. I hope it's been informative and interesting to uh, anyone who's, who's listening here. If folks want to reach out to you or learn more about Totem Leadership, what's the best way to do that? Best way to do that is to go to my website, which is just totemleadership.com or to find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, we've got a lot of fun references in this show that we'll add to the show notes. And Lauren, thank you so much for the time today. This has been great. Thanks, Michael. This has been great. And I'm really excited to hear how your 360s turn out. I'm excited to share. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.